2: My name is Suvi Rautio, and today we are joined by Henny Alava, who is a postdoctoral researcher at Bambere University. Henny will be talking about her new book, Christianity, Politics and the Afterlives of War in Uganda, There is Confusion, which was published in 2022 by Bloomsbury as part of the New Directions and Anthropology of Christianity book series. Christianity, politics, and the afterlives of war in Uganda sheds critical light on the complex and unstable relationship between Christianity and politics, and peace and war. Drawing on long-running ethnographic fieldwork in Uganda's largest religious communities, Henry Oliva maps the tensions and ironies found in the Catholic and Anglican churches in the wake of war between the Lord's Resistance Army and the government of Uganda. The book describes how churches' responses to the war have been enabled by their embeddedness in local communities. Yet it is also in the church's embeddedness in structures of historical violence that religious faith nurtures peace liable to compound conflict. At the heart of the book is the Acholi concept of Anyobanyoba, translated as confusion, which depicts an experienced sense of both ambivalence and uncertainty. A state of mixed-up affairs within community and an essential aspect of politics in a country characterized by the threat of state violence. Foregrounding vulnerability, the book advocates confusion as an epistemological and ethical device and employs it to meditate on how religious believers, as well as researchers, can cultivate hope amid memories of suffering and ongoing violence. I will be discussing the book in more detail with Henny, who have the pleasure of joining me on the show today. Henny, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast.
1: Thank you, Sobe. It's such a huge pleasure and privilege to get to talk about the book with you. Thank you. Um, So I'd like to begin
2: by asking you about your background and research interests. What led you to study Christianity and politics in Uganda?
1: Now, that's a question that I guess I could answer in many ways. And each of the possible answers leads us to slightly different conclusions. But let's try this one. Um, I did my master's degree in development studies and uh, for various reasons ended up in northern Uganda during the sort of tail end of the war between the Lord's Resistance Army and the government of Uganda um, in 2006 to do my master's thesis, which I then did on development intervention and conflict. And that was what I was originally going to study um, for my PhD as well. But then for various reasons, I was away with one of, on maternity leave. And during that time, some really incredible research was done already on development aid in northern Uganda and on the sort of depoliticizing effects of aid. So I was left with a conundrum of what to study then that would be new. And I literally sighed to... Uh, my supervisor at the time that, oh, gosh, I'm interested in politics, but I don't know where to study it. Maybe I'll just go and join a church choir. And so it was initially, this was where it started off from was a joke, but it was very quickly became something very serious because I had a lot of experience singing in church choirs. I had grown up very much in the midst of the Lutheran church in Finland and my parents had been missionaries in Hong Kong. So I had grown up with the Catholic and the Anglican (laughs) and the Lutheran church um, as a child. But I had always resolutely um, said that I will never study theology, that there's enough of that in my family already. But then once I realized that there was this whole huge sort of area of life, social life in northern Uganda, which hadn't been studied very systematically, which was the mainline churches, which over 90% of the population belonged to, I realized that I am actually quite well placed to do that. And then that's what I did. I wound up in a church choir in, in an Anglican and a Catholic church in Uganda and decided that I used the sort of background I had from other parts of my life, though not from my research prior to that, and brought that into, into my PhD.
2: And that really does come out clearly in, in each of your chapters. You, you do such a beautiful job at outlining your own life trajectories and, and your own religious faith. Um, and and through that, are able to, to gain this this very honest and respectful um Kind of correspondence with the people that you got to know and 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 the religious faith that that the people that you spent time with that their world that they live in um but for our listeners who are unfamiliar with uganda um perhaps you could talk briefly about the region where you did your research and provide some background information about the presence of the catholic and anglican churches there
1: Right. So what Northern Uganda is most commonly sort of known for, if you ask people, you just the average person, if they know something about Uganda, they will know about Idi Amin. And if they know something about Northern Uganda, they will know about Joseph Kony and the Lord's Resistance Army and the, the rebellion that continued for 20 years beginning in 1986 between, between the LRA and the government of Uganda. But in the book, I really talk a lot about how that's not a very good place to start thinking about what northern Uganda is. Um, what I would start from is rather by saying that northern Uganda is a region, Choli in particular, which is a part of the broader northern Uganda. It's a region that has been experiencing violence Already prior to the colonial era, throughout the colonial era, when missionaries spread to this area, and throughout different phases of Uganda's post-colonial history, it's it's been uh, uh, an area with a lot of political violence and instability. And the Catholic and the Anglican churches, like I mentioned, were were brought to the area in the at the same time as. Um, colonial rule. So in the beginning of the 1900s, in around 1910, 1912, which was much later than in other parts of Uganda, where the Catholic and Anglican churches had been active already at that point for a long period of time. So northern Uganda was the last area in Uganda to be colonized, and also the last area for missionaries to establish their outposts and then established the churches that then grew to be Uganda's largest religious communities. Like I said, in that area, the predominance of Catholics is one one of the largest or one of the most significant in Uganda compared to other parts of the country. It's a very firmly sort of traditionally a very firm Catholic region within Uganda. And those two churches continue to be really significant alongside a smaller minority of of Muslim communities in Achali, but they're, like I talk about this somewhat or some little bit in the book that they're also churches like in throughout Uganda, they're being <clears throat> challenged by the growth of Pentecostal charismatic churches, which are gaining influence throughout the country. And so one more thing maybe to mention about Northern Uganda is that not only has Charlie experienced decades of violence, but it's also been the a sort of marginalized area in many ways in terms of development and state um, investment in infrastructure, for instance, particularly during this current president's regime, which began in 1986, which is also where the, when the war started. So that's that's how I describe a Charlie briefly.
2: Thank you so much for that, Lindy. And um, you know, you, you, these themes are something we're going to continue picking up on as as we as we continue talking. Um, let's move Let's move into into chapter one of your book. Chapter one is titled "The Gun and the Word: Missionary Colonial History in Kitgum." And in chapter one, you trace the relationship of mainline churches and the colonial state in Uganda to show how these churches have been embedded across northern Uganda. Can you tell our listeners a bit more about this? Why is it important to talk about Christianity and churches as institutional forms in Uganda, that are not separate from social reality, but rather as socially, politically, materially, and cosmologically embedded in everyday life. As somebody who's unfamiliar with the Ugandan context, myself, um, what's the relevance of this? Um, I, of I, uh, just um, what what does your research provide in this conversation that wasn't there?
1: I'd say that actually, I think the way I make that argument in the book about the relevance of understanding mainline Christianity as embedded in these complex ways is not so much a comment on research concerning Christianity in Uganda specifically, Um what there has been very little of in Uganda research is research on the Northern Ugandan area. Like there's so much research on, on churches in Buganda in the central kingdom and that area, but much, much less in the sort of peripheries like um, Achali is considered often to be. So that's like that the chapter contributes to understanding that, but the argument about the necessity of understanding churches as embedded embedded, is more a comment to broader discussions um, around Christianity in Africa. And I feel that it really begins or it's really based in my frustration with um, two different types of ways of thinking about churches in Africa and mainline churches in particular, by which I mean like the old missionary churches. The first of these is this idea that churches are something that interact with something else, like this idea that there are churches and politics or churches and gender and (laughs) churches and development. And then there's like analysis that begins from this presumption that they are two distinct entities and then you can sort of trace the positive or the negative impacts of one or the other and usually of churches on the something else. And uh, thinking about churches as embedded, I think brings a lot to our understanding of how and why churches are actually able to influence any of these other things that I mentioned. Like for instance in the discussion about religion and conflict it's often couched in this idea of positive and negative but if you think about these institutions as actually embedded in the societies then it totally nuances the conversation into far more complex questions than whether it's good or bad. so that's sort of one starting point for it. Um, The other starting point for it is a frustration that I've had with um, certain scholars in different fields, there's, I would say, within anthropology and development studies, in, in different genres, both of research and practice, there are are incredibly important reasons for being very critical of churches. And for instance, their complete like missionary-colonial collaboration, which I talk about in the chapter, I, there's a lot of unpacking that needs to still be done around that for sure. But at the same time, I feel that if it's done without really realizing what that embeddedness is and what it means for people, it becomes a very useless critique of everything that goes under the category of church or Christian that they're just considered colonial impositions and therefore considered somehow negative and bad which I think is a I mean that comes from this post-colonial critique which is very important but if we just leave it at that and we don't realize that they actually mean something for people in the in the context that they live in today then I think we're being quite a quite arrogant. And so my my sort of desire to describe this embeddedness partially emerges from the realization that people who live in these churches don't think of them in post-colonially critical terms. And for us to only think of these churches through post-colonial critique is therefore quite problematic. So... Maybe that's what I'd say. Oh, and that brings me to actually a third reason why I think it's important, is that why I spent quite a bit of time at the beginning of the book showing these different layers of embeddedness through the past hundred over 100 years history of these churches in terms of their social entwinement with social structures their entwinement with political and state actors, their land ownership and their resource ownership, which is part of the material embeddedness, and then their relationships with local pre-Christian cosmologies. It's only through showing how those interactions have developed that I'm actually then able to ask, so what impact do they have? That if I don't understand that sort of layeredness of their embeddedness, then it's very much harder to understand why and how they're relevant today.
2: Absolutely, and and I just wanted to, you know, as you were talking, made me return to one of the quotes you have in your in your introduction. Um, knowing your your history, coming from a family um, of missionaries in Hong mm. Kong, and um, your 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 own
1: husband is um, yeah. also a pastor, right? A so, vicar these own... days, not just any <laughs> pastor. He's a
2: vicar, <laughs> <laughs> and my and parents. Your own your parents yeah. and your own faith i mean um you're you you write about your 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 belief and obviously as you already mentioned in the beginning of the podcast you your whole project started from joining the choir so as i already said you have this deep respect and curiosity in understanding these layers which i think um really isn't it doesn't doesn't come naturally for most research, researchers and quite the counter it is um what you're describing it can be a kind of um resistance to to under, rather than understanding a, a kind of resistance to to even appreciating um the belief and, and the faith and its necessity in people's life. And it just reminds me of one of the quotes you have in your introduction where you say, um, someone's asking, an anthropologist asks you why you don't have a Finnish accent when you speak English. And you respond, well, you grew up in Hong Kong where your parents were missionaries. And to this, the, per- the anthropologist uh, responds, oh, I don't like missionaries. And fair enough, you know. <laughs> Everyone has their own. I opinion. don't like all missionaries either. <laughs> yeah. But, but what, I think, but, but rather than you know, I think that's quite a common response. Rather than understanding the complexities of of Christianity, especially in these in these parts of the world, um, you you know, a lot of people just step back and say, "Well, I don't, I don't, I don't like it. I don't like how the churches are present in people's lives, and you know, all the discourse that comes with it," as you mentioned, through through very much post colonial kind of narrative.
1: And I think um, that really, like that quote, really speaks to. To so many, I mean, this is not just me. There's a lot of people who, particularly people who have any kind of um, personal commitments in terms of our personal background in in Christianity who study Christianity and African studies or in or in anthropology or in religious studies i mean this is very often the experience is that that it's sort of Christians are fair game for and again i understand there's reasons for that like there is a very particular relationship between anthropology and christian mission for instance and there's reason for that and antipathy but at the same time, I do think it's important to unpack why that is and for us to sort of be able to recognize our preconceptions and prejudices also when it comes to something that is so deeply problematic as Christian mission is. And I have to say that uh, that, unless it's, or maybe, Asian, yeah, I don't know, maybe this will come up later, but like I said to you in response to you quoting that, that section, I certainly don't like all missionaries myself. And I've done a lot of, and it's something that a great part of my field work has been, uh, both during working for the PhD and then for my postdoctoral research, which was in Pentecostal churches in urban, um, Southern or central, uh, Uganda later on, um, it's been about puzzling with this discomfort that I have with a lot of Christian practice and a lot of what Christian communities teach. So it's, it's not uncomplicated for me either. Maybe it's just even more complicated, but it's definitely something that is worth unpacking.
2: <laughs> yes, absolutely. And and that is something that, that your book really does, does, does do in, in each of the chapters, this unpacking of both your own, your own role as a researcher and and what you were observing around you. Um, Let's move to to chapter two, titled Church-State War. In chapter two, you discuss the relationship between politics and mainland churches from the run-up to independence under the era of Museveni's national resistance movement government. Can you provide a brief overview on how the research you've collected speaks to church-state relations in Uganda, and how religious markets have entered the political debate to have become entangled in local histories of war?
1: Thanks for the question. Providing a brief overview of of this very complex issue I think is best done by quoting one of my key research participants who I also quote as a sort of framing or use this quote as a framing quote for that chapter which is that it is a confusing, it was a confusing time which is difficult to analyse which is what, what one person I spoke with about the war about the church's role during the war said to me um what Maybe I'll start off by saying that this chapter that speaks more of, like kind of about the way in which the Catholic and the Anglican Church were intertwined with the dynamics of of the war between the Lord's Resistance Army and the other rebel groups during the 19, late 1980s um, and the Ugandan government. This chapter wasn't really there in the original PhD that I developed this book out of. And the reason for that was that people really didn't want to talk about that time. And I didn't feel that it was my place to dig. Because I was aware that there were a lot of there was a lot of confusion, a lot of sort of anjoba anjoba, as people said, around what went on. And the war was still very close in time. And I imagine I could have adopted a more sort of, I don't want to use the word aggressive, a more persistent sort of approach to getting my research participants to sort of analyze these relationships of the churches with the state, with political parties, with, with rebel groups. But it just didn't feel, it, I don't think it would have been right because it was very clear that this wasn't a topic that people were wanting to discuss. I was aware that there were people who had been keeping diaries, for instance, during the war, there were mentions that there were diaries at mission stations that maybe might have been there. But whenever I sort of suggested that could I maybe have a look and I'd find it really interesting, it was just, I was just ghosted or silenced, or then just, you know, it it was not something that people were willing to discuss for obvious and good reasons. So I didn't write about it. And in the original thesis, I sort of said that. That doing so is also a way of decentering the war because so much of the research that has been done in northern Uganda starts off from the war and makes the war and everything that happened during the war and the trauma of the war sort of the centerpiece of the analysis. And I didn't want to do that, um, partially because I feel that it's already been done, partially because I feel it contributes to these kind of very problematic. Uh, victimizing othering sort of discourses around the war. And partially because I wanted to start off from where people started off from, which was all this other stuff, and it wasn't the war. So anyway, for all these reasons, this chapter didn't really exist. But then when I started developing this into a book, I was made very aware, and I myself very much accepted that if somebody wants to read a book about churches in northern Uganda. They need to know something about what was actually happening. How did it influence the institutions? What kind of responses were there? And so on. And I didn't really know what to do about it until it was one of those. There were many serendipitous um, occasions for me in researching and writing this book. And one of them was that, like I described this in the chapter, I sort of stumbled into a closet or I was, I was looking for a place to put my stuff. And I opened a closet at, at a room I was staying at, at a mission station. And there was a pile of old dusty papers and books and stuff at the bottom of the closet. And I asked the parish priest, can I have a look at what's here? And what I found among a whole bunch of other interesting stuff was, um, was a a pile of newsletters that the Catholic mission order, the Camboni missionaries write. I hadn't known this. I've never stumbled into it before, but they've had these monthly newsletters, like with a global circulation for decades. And I found a pile of these newsletters from the years of the war, and they had long excerpts of letters that the Camboni had sent to their central office during the years of the war and so by reading through the newsletters and then by finding some on some of them some of the later ones actually ended up also being online um i was able to sort of reconstruct what was going on at the mission stations um through the newsletters. So people didn't have to tell me their stories. I could read them from the newsletters and then I could use that and the little that I had learned over my interviews over the years to sort of try and piece together some of the things that happened. And another thing that then in that, that, that made that chapter possible was that I traced, um, was able to trace one Camboni missionary who is nowadays in the United States who I had heard made reference to that he was deported by the government during one of the high peaks of the war. And I had heard people mention this as an example of somehow the state interference on the Catholic Church. But I was able to find him um, and have extended interviews with him about what happened. And he had all these documents that unpublished documents that he had been given by a Charlie activist during the war, which he then forwarded on to me. And I had other documents from other people that sort of, I was able to piece together a lot of things, which, I mean, it's not like court evidence type, (laughs) type material, but it does. It did give a very, very new rich sort of insight into some of the things that, that sort of characterized those interrelations between the churches and the state and the different rebel parties during that time. So what, they, what the material tells us about is really about how how complex it has been for religious institutions to navigate these very, very, very tense and actually like brutally violent and dangerous dynamics and how they've done that both sort of institutionally and then parallel to these institutional goings on how different types of religious responses have been have emerged in response to what's been going on. And there's other people, particularly I want to mention here, Todd Whitmore, who has written about these sort of the liturgical responses to the war by the Catholic Church, which are which I was able to then weave into my own narrative. Yeah. Maybe that provides at least and uh, 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 answers some of that. Um, That's question. really
2: incredible. Yeah, absolutely, and um, and uh, it's really incredible to listen to. You know that that kind of you have to be open minded. You have to, you have to allow. You have to trust that the process when you're doing research that you you know the story of you stumbling upon this, this this box of this treasure box basically. Um, and rather than using um, okay, force, or so rather than persistently returning to certain research participants and asking the same questions, which uh, there's a reason, as you mentioned, there's a reason why people are silent. There's a reason why people ghosted you in the beginning. Um, and yet this box that you came across and getting and gaining consent that you can access the box box and continue working through the material, um, that's that's a sign of just being. That's a sign of persistence, <laughs> rather. Um, you, you've you delved into this theme of um, le- what you describe. The, 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 the chapter three, the title is learning to listen, um, learning to listen to silence and confusion. Um, and in this chapter, you portray the difficulties of listening to painful experiences in a region where, as you just mentioned, silence has become a culturally appropriate coping mechanism for dealing with painful memories. Um, I I enjoyed this chapter on a number of levels, but what I particularly enjoyed about it is how you write about your research experience as um, something that that made it possible to research a war-affected community in a meaningful way, while refraining from taking the war as the primary point of reference. Rather than choosing to break the silence after war, you focused on what people themselves find meaningful. And wish to discuss in efforts to understand how they come, have come how they have come to terms with the past and how they've used the past to make meaning in the present and how they seek to materialize their dreams for the future um, Could you talk about this a bit more? How did you learn to listen to silence and
1: confusion in the aftermath of war Thanks for that question <laughs> um... I mean, this, I'm not sure, I, I, how did I learn to listen to it? I, I mean, the whole chapter is about that. And yet, when you ask it like that, I don't really know how to describe it. It's a good question. I, I, maybe this is, it was sort of, again, one of those serendipitous things that for, Reasons I don't remember anymore. This was almost ten years ago. Um, I didn't. Uh, I didn't foreground the war in sort of how I presented myself as a researcher. I asked if I was talking about churches and politics, like with politicians or with clergy. I would often ask about like. I should go back to my actual research questions that I asked at the time. I'm sure I have them somewhere, but I would ask about like the relationships between churches and politics. I wouldn't say, so tell me about the time of the war. And so that part of it was that by asking that very general question, I mean, obviously, if you're in a post-war zone or a post-war setting, post-war setting, obviously politics is partially about the conflict dynamic. But by asking without being specific, I realized that the conflict dynamic was often something people didn't go into. They talked about other things. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. Let's see whether this keeps happening. And another area where this was then happening was with people I was interviewing who were active members of the churches and whose thoughts about this question about churches and politics I was interested in and then they also didn't bring up their personal experiences very often some did but very rarely and so for reasons I can't really even remember I started doing interviews with people like life story interviews where I'd ask people, so tell me about your life from when you were born up until now and however much detail you want to share. Like Young people in particular who were sort of active parish members and that's where it really struck me that sometimes from outside of the research interactions either before them or after them or from what I had heard from other people I'd know that these people have been through really hard wartime experiences but the life narratives were often told without absolutely no reference to the war whatsoever. So people who were 25 and who had been born, like who had lived through the entire war, would talk about their schooling, would talk about their struggle to find money for school fees, would talk about how their family would move from the village into the town with no reference of it being like a high peak of child abduction years where they had to move because it was unsafe to live in the village. Like these things would be told without reference to the war. And I found that to be really interesting and important. And then there were people around me, particularly at the missions, um, Catholic priests, missionary priests in particular, who talked about this to me, that they said that people don't talk, people don't talk, and they're very worried. So there were sort of multiple indicators from around me suggesting that there's something about this not talking that's interesting. And then as I was starting to feel that way, I was in contact with the most important anthropologist of northern Uganda um, who everybody refers to and who I had the great privilege of then knowing by that time and I wrote to Sverker Finström to ask about this and to talk about this with him and he was like absolutely follow this and then I started doing interviews with people where I'd ask so I've noticed that a lot of people don't want to talk about the war and then we talk about that and then sometimes they would talk about their own experiences and sometimes again avoid them and just talk about all the reasons why people don't want to talk so it was I guess that's how I learned was to try and be alert to what people were wanting to talk about and then following that instead of having my I mean, I had lots of agendas that I was imposing, like the whole question of churches and politics. It was my interest. So I was asking people about that. But then when it came to the war, something intuitively just kind of kept me away from it. And like I write in the book, it was also partially like I came to realize in the long term that it was also partially because it was so hard. That it was hard for me and it was hard for people themselves to talk so it was just easier for all of us to talk about something else like that in that i shared that experience with with the people i was working with
2: yeah yeah absolutely i think i mean i can definitely relate to that um, but, but at the same time, you do have these fantastic ethnographic descriptions of, if I remember correctly, making porridge or or rice with mm-hmm. one of your research participants, and out of nowhere, you know, these stories, her her own story coming out, mm-hmm. which started from from a scab on her arm mm-hmm. or something. She had, had a those. scar
1: on her arm that she started just randomly talking about.
2: Yeah, and and this is after months of of you know really spending lots of time with her. And um, so again, it's 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 just another reminder of why why it's so important to 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 allow for that ethnographic um, opportunity of just spending time with people, and 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 again, you didn't want to use the word forcing stories out of people, but, but being persistent and and just allowing them to be who you who they are. Because also, what's what I find so so fantastic about that descri- description of of her is that. You you juxtapose it with with what how she usually presents herself and how you had kind of gotten to know her as a very bubbly, very optimistic and and um, you know, someone who just gets along with everybody, kind of kind of woman member of the church, and you would never have imagined that she had as uh, stories of, of a violent past. Um, so I think that's also really important. To remind ourselves as researchers to, to to not or just as people not to assume that we know people's pasts according to the front that they they give yeah give and one I think, another
1: and like in the research this is definitely something that I spent a lot of time thinking and writing about is that in the context of research on war in particular there is a I mean there there is a fascination for stories of suffering that we have as human beings that we have as researchers and there is a lot of research that begins from the presumption that we have the right to ask people to tell that we have the right to ask people to share their hardest traumatic pasts even when there is no training no sort of nothing set up to ensure that potentially re-traumatizing research encounters will that that people have some kind of support system afterwards. I mean, I, I there's just too much of that kind of research and it has been rampant, rampant in Northern Uganda. Like researchers coming in for a short time, doing stints of, oh, so tell me when you were abducted, tell me when you were gang raped, tell me when you were mutilated, and then they leave. And that's just wrong. And it it wasn't really until... Yeah, I mean, I, I say that in a very heated way, <laughs> way, while at the same time, I recognize that I too was one of the researchers who went to northern Uganda because I was interested in the war and how people were coping in the aftermath of it. But there, I guess, the privilege I had of having more than a little time that I had eight months, and then I was able to return, I knew that I wasn't in a rush. And because I wasn't in a rush, it was possible to allow time for me to realize that this wasn't something that people wanted to center in how they presented themselves.
2: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a lot of your stories are also of, of people's deepest faith and and moments of pleasure and happiness and hope. We'll return to those themes um, further in the interview. Um, but yeah, it's just such a fantastic chapter and you really draw the reader's attention to the relationality of science, uh, sorry, of silence and how silence can be understood as um, or should be understood as something that's occurring within webs of re- relationships that are also, you know, limited and, um, and we can't impose people to break that silence as you've just described.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
2: Chapter four is titled, it's a fantastic Titles" To Stand Atop an Ant Hill, Performing the State in Kitcom. And in this chapter, you delve into the contemporary actual conceptualizations of politics. In doing so, you look at the public performance of politics in churches in Kitcom to argue that their efficacy rests on that which is neither seen nor heard. I found the material really intriguing in this chapter. And again, as somebody unfamiliar with the Ugandan context, was really taken aback that you were attending events that President Musavani himself was also participating in. Um, so such rich ethnographic material and such fascinating um, performances of the state that you were able to observe. What was it about learning about state-making rituals in the church event that you described with Musavani's visits um, where, where you were able to... What, what did you learn in, in, in being present in the audience in these state making rituals
1: so I happened to be at three I happened to be in Kitkum during three different events where the president came to visit the town first in 2012 and then when I went back apologies for my dog barking in the background um, when I went back in 2015 um, there were two different things that he came for in Kitcom during that time and there was a Time in between, so I was able to also observe differences in how the dynamics went with the run-up to elections in two sixteen. So it was just incredibly, incredibly lucky. In the, I should say that President Museveni does like traveling all around the country and going to lots of events, and it's sort of these types of events like burials and and ch- big church celebrations like the ones I went for and weddings and graduations and things like that, they are really central places for doing politics in Uganda. So in that sense, this doesn't stand out as really unique. So, yeah, I happened to be there at times when Seveny was there, which was really lucky. <coughs> I had, when I went back in 2015, I did go very like I planned to go for the handover of the Catholic mission but I didn't know that the president would come so it was just a lucky thing um and I've often thought about how completely different my research would be without those three events like they are a huge part of my book um a lot all of Chapter Four. It's a description of a state burial and a, an analysis of the sort of political debate that goes on at the burial between opposition politicians and and the president and other members of the government. Whereas also then Chapter Five is very much where I talk about then the undersides of the until I also talk a lot there about about these political events and and sort of what happens at them and what happens in the scenes of them that make the debate at the events look like it does, and sort of shape the outcomes of those events. So it was just very lucky for me to happen to be there at the time. And you asked what I learned about state making rituals at these events. (laughs) I learned everything I know about state-making rituals at these events. So I feel like, obviously, I went then afterward to all sorts of literature that use different kinds of theoretical and conceptual tools to unpack what, what happens in these kinds of events and how the state is narrated. And I went to read all sorts of things <laughs> from Judith Butler onwards to talk about performativity and all these types of things. And sure, but what I understand about the Ugandan state, I very much learned at these particular events where it was just magnified the dynamics of of how people respond to the president, how the president talks to his citizens and the way in which I think in this particular, like if I'd say one thing, one sort of concrete thing that these events really brought home to me and sort of open, maybe if I think of the research I did later in a research team that was talking about citizenship in Uganda, these events, I keep thinking back on how people at the events responded to the president as kind of really fundamental for understanding citizenship and what it looks like in Uganda is that the way in which people, for instance, in Achali bowed their head while the president berated them, that's really fundamental to understand, like, that that is an actual physical process that people in their bodies actually bow their heads and are quiet when they are being, like, brutally disparaged and humiliated by the leader of the state that these events really there's different like in the book i analyze events that were happened in 2012 and then in 2015 just a year before the elections and i talk about how there is a huge difference and the space for opposition politicians for instance to protest and to speak back that changes it's not standard it fluctuates from one point of time to another but it was important for me to see that like somehow mass humiliation and the way that people just took it because they didn't have an option there was no there was no you know public outrage of people speaking back particularly then when it was just a year to the elections like the threat of violence was so heavy that that there was no protest of course then during the elections there was protest but it was mainly in the capital city and in big cities in rural areas like this there isn't and then people are just at the end of the day many people are just really happy that the president comes with an envelope and that the road is tarmacked and it like these events really speak about the personalization of power in the president and of how people have not na- how that is naturalized and how people respond to state power i feel these events are really great places for learning about that
2: mm-hmm. yeah and, and also absolutely what what you're describing this this kind of bowing down to power but also in in, in the in, in the first chapter speaking back to the president in, in 2012 what you observed i mean the, the two different ritual practices are you know the complete opposite yeah so it's that was also really fascinating that you were able to observe that actual not protesting but but speaking back to the president where is that tarmac road where or, you know why are we at this funeral where, where did things go wrong Mm,
1: that's true. And it's funny or no it's not funny it's tragic actually now that I think of your question and how I responded to it because it if I had answered this question in 2012 or 13 14 I would have spoken about precisely this like for anybody who who is interested in Ugandan politics I can't wait for this public um I mean for the for the book to become open access because I think that this chapter is really It's just really interesting what happens at that event. It's not my words that are fascinating. It's the words of the opposition politicians in the speeches, like with Olara Utunnu and Norbert Mao, people who are now already sort of off the the political scene in Uganda. And the the whole dynamic has changed. But this chapter sort of catches a moment in Ugandan history where these really, really vocal... um, Although somewhat marginal, but vocal politicians had a crowd who ate from like just ate what they had to give and where the president was like a sideshow that it was a show of like a Charlie consciousness in the face of Museveni's you know, presidency. And it was like a celebration of how fun it was to ridicule the president. Like it was the 2012 event was like that. But the way I answered your question now really, if I reflect on it, it speaks to what I've seen happen since I finished the PhD. And since I finished the book that like in the most recent elections, this sort of cramping down on political space has just gotten worse and worse and worse in Uganda and in research I've been writing like that that is in the books particularly or uh, not in the books but in the pipeline with my colleague Jimmy Sentongo who I've written with on the sort of political mood in Uganda over the past few years it's it's far more dim like this sense of there being political space has really it's not really there in the same kind of way that That it feels the feeling is very different but I guess I would like to say that these kinds of memories of these historical moments where people have been able to protest and also in the more recent Ugandan situation like with with the opposition the current opposition leader Bobby Wine who's a musician and like a, a ghetto politician superstar, the way that people were excited by the, his campaign prior to then being everything like just being shut down by the state, the election being captured by the state. There, These moments are important as, as historical sort of records for people to dwell on and to remember that there is the possibility of space for thinking of a future that is different. And in that way, I'm, I'm really glad that I was there at that time, because if I had missed this sort of celebration and spectacle, there was no other moment where that kind of, you know, where the state was actually really firmly rendered, open to critique, or not open to critique, but forced to be critiqued.
2: Yes. Mm. Yes, and again, uh, not just the time that you were there, but you were
1: there, especially again, it, it was relevant. It was a religious event, mm. right? So, well, it was and it wasn't. Now, that's the interesting thing that that, in a way, I feel that. Like in a way, these kinds of events, like the, there's this whole sort of way in which religious events these kind of public, not just everyday Sunday services, although those two sometimes, but these bigger public events, bigger public religious events, whether they're sort of at a parish level or bigger sort of regional events, there is a way in which politics tends to use that, like the Charlie concept of Bia of standing on an anthill. Like I write in the book that politicians tend to use churches as the anthills that they stand upon. But that's something that I then analyze, that although the churches in a way are just the anthills, the politicians use them for their own devices and just make these events that are very political in content. And there's talk about policy and there's mainly like just huge Um, patronage negotiations going on in the public at these events and so on. But at the same time, I do think it matters that they are churches because in ways that I show in the book, often the sort of religious part of the ceremonies will, the religious leaders will use them to try to push the conversation that they know will follow into particular kinds of directions. So they talk about forgiveness, they talk about humility, they talk about service to the nation and all these kinds of things. Like they try to couch these events as um, events where, you know, some kind of positive benign politics could grow out of it sometimes then there's there's three different ways there's this that i described but then there's events where the politicians are just left out like particular, not the anglican church doesn't but the catholic church some individual clergy are really good at just saying nope they don't let them in and then the politicians are allowed there, but they're not allowed to talk. So then that becomes a different kind of arena, but you need to be very special to be sort of be able to do that. And there's not many people in Uganda who can. Um, And then the third kind of event is where even the religious setting of the, the religious section of the event is couched to Or it's all structured around supporting this performance of statehood in the person of the president. So like in an article that's coming out in a couple of weeks in in the Nordic Journal of African Studies, I talk about one of these events um, that was... That happened, hold on, two years ago that I was lucky to be able to watch live on TV where the whole sort of religious sector, all the religious leaders like throughout this ceremony, were all just talking about how wonderful the president is and how wonderful it is that he is like he is the benefactor of the nation and he is keeping us safe. So these religious events also or the religious component of these events plays very different um, roles in relation to the political process happening at them at different times and it's not necessarily something you know beforehand like it can go in quite different ways like you have one rebellious bishop who's at the who's at the microphone and he can turn the whole tone of the whole event into something different so it's really it's interesting and <laughs> interesting how it can look very different at different times.
2: Okay, thanks so much for Henry. That was so fascinating. Um, Is there something else you want to add that um, you write about in chapter chapter five, the underside of the anthill, where you look at crafting subdued citizens? Um, Is there something you'd like to talk about in more detail for our listeners to, to understand the content of that chapter?
1: Yeah, thanks for the question. Maybe since I already spoke a little bit about the differences between the different types of, or the different events that Museveni was at, that I analyze in these two chapters. Um, what I could say is that, again, here is where I feel that the sort of power of ethnographic research is is what made this second chapter possible, that if I had only attended the events, I would have probably had quite a different understanding of what was happening, and how people were maybe interpreting things and, and what it meant that there was no critique of the 2015 ones, for instance, but because I knew people at this point, I had known them for a number of years and people, I saw them, like we went to the event together. We left the event together. I was there in the weeks running up to the event and sort of seeing what types of things were people were talking about as Museveni's approach, like Museveni's coming to you, Kitgun was approaching, it was possible to understand those events as like within the context of where they took place and when they took place. So like I say I talk in that chapter about, about how these performances of statehood they <laughs> although they take place upon the anthill, to use this Sacholi. Um idea of of standing on an anthill in this chapter I think about all the things that are sort of under the anthill the rumors the silence the fear of past events and the fear that it might erupt again um, and, and both of those things both the public performance and then the sort of subdued um, every day the underside I feel are really important for understanding understanding how politics emerges in the in the post-conflict context and in Uganda in general, that they're very different but very intimately interlinked realities, like the public and the the hidden, or or the stage and the backstage. So that was a. I could maybe just this is not related to the substance matter, maybe so much of the of the chapter, but I have to say that this was one of the places, this chapter, where I really um it was kind of hard to write because this, and I remember here, I, I owe a great debt of gratitude now that I think of it to Cecilia Lankin, who has written about, who I cite quite a bit in that chapter. She's studied like state making in these paramilitary um, training events that Ugandans, many Ugandans attend. And I remember talking to her early on about how it's hard to get a sense of what's going on, that it's hard to really know what's actually happening. And I don't really know whether people really believe in these rumors that they talk about or whether they're like, I don't really know. I remember like telling her something like this and she was like, but Henny, that's exactly how people feel. And that was... That was like super, super important for me to understand a little bit, like in the whole thing about silence and about discomfort about silence that this whole, this, this whole sort of experience of not really knowing what's happening and not really knowing how scared or suspicious you're supposed to be about different things that you encounter. This was, I mean, I remember a lot of people have commented on drafts of this chapter by saying that you were really paranoid. And I write about like how I got really scared at certain points that I was being tracked or that my mobile phone was being listened to or that something that I was doing would get people into trouble or these kinds of things. Although I wasn't talking with any political activists in that kind of way, there was no rational reason for me to fear for in in a, in many ways, but still, I did feel uncomfortable, and that and f- figuring out like what was what all to make of all of that was really a huge part of writing this chapter. And like I said, it was just important to realize that it wasn't just me, but it, it's what everybody in this kind of authoritarian context lives with all the time and it's a huge part of how the state holds power is that people don't really know so that's what the chapter is about
2: yeah i mean i i I don't, I don't i don't quite know how productive that is people if researchers just expect to take that that kind of advice you know stop being so paranoid because that's a very selfish way of of looking at what, what research or especially ethnography is because you're working so intimately with people who can't leave that context. Yeah, fair enough. One day your research will come to an end and you'll catch a plane, but um, you're, you're, it also shows your, your complete awareness and, and, and respect to the people that you're working with because um, that paranoia will, will, as you just described, continues in the society um, you know, where, where, we, where we work. But, but that other side of, of um, living with, the only way that people who live in this kind of paranoia and, um, and qu- constant questioning, the only other way of living is to live with faith and to live with um, peace and forgiveness and hope and a sense of moving on, which is what you write about in Chapter 6, titled My Peace I Give You, Utopian Narratives of Inclusion and Boundaries of Exclusion. And I think this is what really does make your research so unique and rich is that you do write about um, the sense of, as I just mentioned, the sense of desire for peace, for forgiveness, for hope um, is is in people's lives. And um, at least that's my in, in, interpretation from from that chapter, someone who's very, again, unaware of the Ugandan context, especially in, in, in the northern U- Ugandan context what you write about. Um, could you talk a bit about how does the utopia of peace and mainline Christianity in northern Uganda convey aspects of both utopia as a method of hopeful social transformation and of the inherent violence of utopian
1: social imagination? Sure. I should maybe begin by unpacking this idea of a utopia of peace. This... Um, Again, I'm not really quite sure what it was that led me to really read up on utopian studies, this, this fascinating branch of research called utopian studies, um, when I was writing this this chapter. But it proved to be really, really relevant and somehow gave me a lot of analytical insight into thinking about the ways in which Churches and here, and not just churches. Religious leaders overall in Uganda, um, in northern Uganda, responded to the war and the way they were sort of continuing. Some of them were continuing to try to craft this idea of of a better, more peaceful, less violent future. So, what I haven't mentioned so far. Um, is the Charlie Religious Leaders Peace Initiative, which was this movement originally of Catholic, Anglican, and Muslim, and Orthodox, which is a tiny, tiny little church in in northern Uganda. This movement of religious leaders that started up during the war, where religious leaders tried to respond to the violence in different kinds of ways. They were in direct um, negotiations with rebels and with the government. They went, like as they said, they went out into the bush to try to negotiate for the rebels to give... um, or to release captives and abductees. And they had all sorts of, you know, peace events. And they they started doing advocacy work to get the world to wake up to the Northern Ugandan crisis because it was very much under acknowledged by aid organizations or the international media for a really long time. So um, this this is a side note, but let me just note that I don't write very much about the RLP overall in the book and only sort of it isn't in a very central role, even in this chapter, which is something that a lot of people in Uganda have wondered about. And the reason for that, which I just want to mention, is that in the area where I was working in Eastern Charlie, and then sort of some years after the war, this the Charlie Religious Leaders Peace Initiative wasn't a big deal anymore. Like, so I felt that there was a sort of mismatch between how people saw the churches and what they were doing and how international media coverage has described it. Like, it's always the story of RLP gets retold and retold and retold because it's a pretty narrative, right? (laughs) That there was a terrible war and then religious leaders came and there was peace. But it's just, I don't think that's exactly how... At least from Kitkum, that wasn't really the way to tell the story at all. But details about that are in the chapter. But so back to the narrative and to the, your question, um, this this vision that the RLP, that the Religious Leaders Peace Initiative had, really resonated to me with this idea of utopia because if you think of the history of violence in uganda like from the time of colonialism throughout um the like eras following independence like there's been so much violence and in the north it's just continued up until very recent years and now there's violence out violent outbreaks in south sudan in in um the central african republic in in um the DRC that are all intermeshed with what's going on in Uganda, I mean this is a very violent place of the world like the the way in which colonialism established boundaries and power dynamics in this area and the way small arms and international politics have meddled with this area like it is it is very violent, and if within that context, you have a bunch of people come and say. Let there be peace. We will no more, we will not have swords, we will have we will we will sow the fields, we will have people where black and white and Anglican and Catholic and and Charlie and Baganda and everybody will love each other. Like this kind of vision, it does sound like a place that isn't. Like it does sound like a utopia. So I felt that the concept of utopia really captures a lot of the sort of immense contradiction that goes into speaking about peace the way that religious leaders have done in this context. So that, I think, that, that's how I sort of got, got pulled into the thinking about this as a utopia. But then what I argue in the chapter is that it's not just about these public proclamations. At all, that they're part of it, and they're important, and many people cite them and refer to them. But what really, I think, is much more powerful, is how this kind of idea of hope and of, of forgiveness and of moving on, really just flows through people's experiences in the churches I studied, like I describe in the chapter about like, for instance, I spoke about these interviews I did with young adults about like their experiences of their life, and I knew about some of their stories. And I, and then to have all those things in my mind as I sang with them at the front of church on Sunday mornings, almost every Sunday, they wanted to sing this praise song before the church actually got started or during communion where they would sing, things are getting better things are getting better. And it would just, like we'd just sing the same thing. When the Lord is on my side, things are getting better. Things are getting better. Things are getting better. And it was just, we would sing it on repeat and you could see that people felt it. They believed it. They trusted in it. They had no money. They had no jobs. They had like, they were on every sort of clinical measure. A lot of them were severely traumatized. (laughs) But when it just like i used some kind of language of like how it flowed or glowed or something but it really did like it was really powerful to see that that and feel that like in the praise practices of people and in how they spoke about what the church meant to them what the choir meant to them how much it gave to them so I feel that that's another layer layer of the utopia. So it's not just about the public proclamations, but people's experiences of community, of faith, of like overcoming boundaries within their churches, for instance, where it, it was like a uto- the utopia was already there. People believed that this other place, this other way of living is already there. So I think that there is like a lot there that you can... <laughs> you asked about how how it speaks to like utopia as hopeful social transformation that there is there is a lot of you know there's there's resources in that that can clearly and are clearly being used in communities by religious individuals and and institutions to sort of inspire transformation but then the underside of it is that that <laughs> in these beautiful, evocative, um, emotionally very touching sort of spiritual places, there is a lot of boundary work that comes with creating this community of us that uh, what I write about in the in the book is about like the way in which these same communities speak, like the most horrendous homophobic um, exclusionary, discourse is promoted in these same religious spaces in ways that that sexual and gender minorities in Uganda have felt the brunt of like absolutely brutally um so there's a paradox in that and then something I don't write about in the book but that actually came out in my later research is that in the in the same choir where people um have all these things that I described about community and about hope and so on. For instance, the way in which single mothers who fail to reach the standard of being the good Christian woman who has a husband and who's committed with that husband and whose husband is committed to them and they are raising the Christian child, everybody who doesn't quite reach that mark is an outsider. Like they are very committed, but they still often feel excluded like they like so that there is this constant tension between belonging and then the very very tight boundaries within which you should belong to really be at the center of the community so that's that's where i think that chapter sort of speaks to that tension
2: thank you that was really really beautiful hendy thank you so much hendy that was really beautiful and um your, your, answer, your answer just now really draws on, again, this notion of confusion in the church, which is the main theme of the book itself. Um, and this brings, up, brings us to chapter seven. In chapter seven, you write, quote, churches, where their utopias of peace, harmony, love, family, and forgiveness, obviously feed into beliefs. Here, the belief is that churches are more holy and ideal. I believe it is the contradictions between these cherished beliefs and the messy reality of money, power and the mistakes and conflicts to which they give rise that people label confusion in the church. So as I was reading this, as somebody who is very much an outsider to the Ugandan context, but also to broader themes of anthropology of religion, um, I I went back to this question. I know you write about it throughout your book, but um, I'm going to ask you anyway. What is it about the role of churches in the Ugandan context that makes these contradictions or what you describe as confusion as so unique?
1: Hmm, that's an interesting question. What is it? Can you repeat what is it about the Ugandan context that makes it so yes, unique? Yes, the role the role of the churches in the Ugandan right. context. Like maybe I'd answer that by saying that in some ways it's very specific to Uganda, in that this the the specific concept of confusion, like I write about this in the book, that where it comes from originally in my work is that I was I asked my key informants or key research participants to translate key sort of analytical concepts into Charlie Maya. Charlie wasn't good enough to do all the fieldwork in 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 the local language. Um, which is something we could discuss at more at more length if you want, but but so with well well educated Ugandan um, Achali speakers who I was spending a lot of time with, I asked them to translate certain concepts into English, and then we spent a lot of time talking or into Achali and then talked about them. And where this particular concept originally came from was that I asked one of my key interlocutors to ask to uh, to tell me how um church politics is translated into charlie and he thought about it for a good long while and then he said well i think which is confusion in the church and that was like oh hold on and i realized that a lot of people were talking about like confusion about how things are confusing or how um how they don't really know. And, and then I sort of started paying attention to when people use that concept and it was quite um, common. Or then if in a conversation, people would describe something and then I'd ask, oh, so, people would start laughing at recognition of, yes, that's exactly what it is. Like there is confusion. So I started sort of using it as a heuristic, I guess, to sort of try and capture capture things. So in that way it is very specific to this concept, this context that it came from an Achali concept for church politics. Um, And but I think it is actually absolutely universal, and I've used this sort of a charlie understanding of the tension between all these ideals, not just the ideal that the church or this belief that the church is more holy and ideal but but just all sorts of like the tension between the beliefs in goodness in in forgiveness in compassion, in solidarity in in you know love and and all these things that the christian faith has as sort of central parts of theology in many christian contexts like the tension between those very beautiful ideals and faiths and the material reality of churches as institutions that are embedded like that that tension to me is captured by this idea of confusion because for a lot of people who are believers they see both things that they can feel these really powerful emotions about how they and they can be moved by these beliefs and proclamations but yet they see all the stuff that is going on within their religious communities not just because they're religious communities but that's what human life is like everywhere all institutions we have to discuss how to share money how to share power and that leads to disputes that leads to conflicts like this is my I guess my I don't know negative understanding of human relationality and communities is is, what comes to the fore here because that's sort of how I think that all human communities and institutions unavoidably are so in the context of religion this creates a tension because there's this reality that there's money and there's in the Ugandan case that there's corruption and there's nepotism and there's, there's disputes and there's connections to political parties and all this stuff. And it's not supposed to be there. Like people repeatedly would tell me that politics and all this money stuff, it doesn't belong in church and everybody knew it did. So it was sort of like a cognitive dissonance in a way that everybody knows, but everybody wishes it wasn't like that. Um, and I feel this is really it's not just about Uganda. I've used these concepts to analyze my own Lutheran Church in Finland to write about like the messes that our own bishops have gotten themselves into or one particular one. no names mentioned today um anyway, so it is like I feel it is a very universal thing, and I think that what this brings to the more general or or why this is relevant for research in this field is that obviously not all but there is a tendency for researchers to focus on one or the other like there is a lot of research that sort of stays on the level of all the community building and the ritual and the wonderful things that are happening and that's interested in in sort of that and then there's the political economists of religion who sort of look at the you know all of this institutional stuff but they're often kept separate And I think that's a real shame, because it's particularly when when you look at both of them together that it gets interesting. So that's what I try to do in my book, and sort of inspire people to say that you can do both things, and then put them against each other and see what emerges. And what emerges is all this beautiful complexity of how humans everywhere sort of are stuck in between our aspirations for something better and the reality that it is just hard for human beings to live together and figure out how to do it in a good way that doesn't erupt in you know chaos or confusion
2: confusion yeah yeah yeah, I think I mean that definitely comes out in your book, and um and and for listeners, um get the book, because uh, we're not going to go into the detail now, but you do also, Andy, you know, refer to academic institutions, also sites of confusion, and obviously something that that um we both experience, and um you know these experiences, these institutional um, limitations do need to be written about and, and discussed more openly, in particular through this notion of of confusion, um, whether we draw on, draw on a Choli word, which again, I probably cannot <laughs> pronounce or, or we can maybe refer to the more English um, translation of, of confusion itself. Um, so that's um, it's it's such a rarity in research to be able to, or, or in a kind of ethnographic book like yours to be able to bring all of this together and its complexity and richness and do- not disregard uh, one or the other you know be, be, be aware of of both this this notion of the beauty and the faith that's there but also the, the uglier side. Um, and um, and that really does shine through your throughout your ethnography. Um, if we move close to the conclusion, and the conclusion, again, you do a really beautiful job of pulling all of these ropes in, in, of the argument together, and you point towards the necessity of a researcher to advocate a position that, as you described, quote, oscillates between social critique and the affirmation of hope that untangles the suffering induced by the political economy of hope while declining to reject the act- affect of hopefulness. Unquote, and I really love this idea. Um, and I was it made me think about um, more about the question you pose in the conclusion. Why do mainland churches receive so little academic attention? Again, as an outsider in the field, this was this was shocking to me. Um, how is it possible that the number of of people working in this field and the number of academic publications coming from this area that there really is actually very little academic attention on the mainline churches. Um, perhaps you could briefly talk about this, so our listeners can also better understand what is it about mainline churches being the largest religious communities in Uganda? What is it about them that it's received um, so little academic attention?
1: Now that you say it like that, I feel like I should make a disclaimer and say all the people <laughs> who have done research on it on mainline <laughs> churches in, in Uganda, but but I stand behind my claim in that if you look at the sort of bulk of research on, for instance, African Christianity um, over the past 20, 30 years, it's not... Mainline churches that get the most attention. Obviously, part of that is because they were researched heavily, much more heavily during the colonial and post-colonial era, like the immediate post-independence era in many African contexts. But part of it is that I think it, it's <laughs> there's many things there, but I think part of it is that they're they're too close. They're sort of like I could I knew the hymns sung in the church in Uganda, and anyone who's grown up like in a Catholic church or in an Anglican church, like you have a, if you have background, it's familiar. And as anthropologists, many people are very interested in what's exotic and strange. And so the place that many people have been pulled to go are the churches that are more dramatic in their expression. Like the, the, classic statement by Sonia Harding on evangelicals being the ultimate other, the ultimate ideal other of the secular, feminist, liberal, ethnographic self really stands to explain I think a lot of why Pentecostal charismatic churches are so much more studied in contemporary Africa than mainline churches are, or then within the mainline churches there's more research on sort of the Pentecostal branches or Catholic sects within within the mainline field. It's it's more different, and I think that's if that's the reason, then there's a problem there because it is like perpetuating these othering discourses that makes make Africans as a whole, seem somehow even more strange and different and un- unknowable, because they're so very different to us. And, I mean, that part of it, I think, is deeply problematic. But of course, the other side of it, which, which definitely uh, merits, they merit research is because they are new, they are growing, they are really influential. And like in my postdoc, I too went, ended up studying Pentecostal churches in urban areas because they are very important and it is important to understand what's happening in them. So it's it's not like I'm saying that we shouldn't study them at all, but I think it, it sort, of, sort of, I've found it me- meaningful to stop to think about why it is that we haven't studied them that much. And part of the reason, like I said, is that I think they're very familiar and part of it is like I, we turn back to the beginning of the, of our talk today, today's will be is that, like, I've had people tell me that they just, you know, there's also it's it's totally okay to nonchalantly, apparently, for researchers to say, you know, what I don't like missionaries. I don't, I'm not interested in what happens at church on Sunday morning. I'm not, you know, not my thing. So they people just don't, and so instead of following our interlocutors to the spaces where they spend time on a Sunday morning, we talk to them about things that we find to be of interest. And in Uganda, that has led to not, I wouldn't say for anthropologists, but for for political scientists studying Uganda, that has led to like a gross oversight in that I've had political scientists tell me that religion was relevant in Uganda during colonialism, but it isn't anymore. But they've also come to tell me I've proved them wrong. So (laughs) that gives me some sense of, I'm happy about that. (laughs) Well, one person has, I shouldn't generalize here. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But I
2: mean, it's exactly. I mean, you're able to pull these pull these disciplines together, right? So, so that's that's what is. You're able to kind of re- remind people of the conversations and and the experiences mm-hmm. of people that they're working with that might not otherwise, be confronted with.
1: Well, I'm glad you say you say that I managed to pull them together because my feeling very often has been that I just stretch myself incredibly thin by <laughs> by going to all sorts of directions, but. I'm less anxious about being stretched thin as I was before. I think it does come together in the end into like it. And it brings us to this idea of confusion and that I think that being stretched thin in in terms of reading into different disciplines and trying to understand how different disciplines understand, understand the world really, it, it sort of, um, it helps maintain a fairly humble stance towards how much we really can know because it's impossible to be master everything and it it's problematic to even try that's kind of how I've tried to get my or find peace with this sort of interdisciplinary orientation that I've Ended up adopting.
2: Yeah, um, but Henry, how are you being stretched these days? What have you What have you been working on um, since Since Christianity, politics, and afterlives of war in Uganda, there is confusion. What have you been working on since Since your book was published, although it's been very recent, um, but I'm sure our listeners want to hear about the kind of current projects that that, that are going on in your life. Well, speaking of being
1: stretched very thin indeed, (laughs) um, I ended up, for various reasons, jumping into something completely new. In fact, right about the time when the book came out, I started working in a new research project where I was very lucky to find people who pulled me aboard on on their project with a proposal I had developed, um, which is on something completely different, and I'm doing ethnographic research in Finland on families' experiences of pediatric persistent pain and its care. So I've been sort of learning about medical anthropology and science and technology studies and childhood studies and parenting studies. Um, So completely new things. But the more I read and the more, just this morning I was in an interview with with a member of a pain uh, care team, and I was I was listening to her talk about what she does and what her aims are as a researcher, as as um, a practitioner, a clinical practitioner within her encounters with families, and she spoke about hope and about like the the importance of finding ways for us to connect or for her to connect with the parents, with the child who is in pain, of the, the helping the parents and the child connect better with each other and to sort of nurture this sense of hope that things can get better even in the midst of enormous suffering. And I sat there listening to her and thought, well, this is what I've been doing for the past 10 years, even though in a completely different context that this this thematic of how people... Um, live and overcome adversity is right there at the heart of what I'm doing now so I don't really know yet how it will happen um but I have a hope (laughs) a hope indeed but um accidental addition of hope but it is a hope that that it will be possible for me to somehow not do a it can't be like a simplistic comparison as such, but that it would be possible for me to bring what I've learned from people in post-war northern Uganda and what I'm learning from people living with pediatric pain here in my own society and in my own communities, to bring those somehow into discussion with each other in terms of how it is that people survive adversities, difficulties, and how how hope is nurtured, and where it fails and how it fails in the middle of suffering. So these are sort of big themes that I've now realized after starting this new research that they really come together in both.
2: That's so meaningful, to me especially considering the current time that we live in. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of places, a lot of people um, still dealing with um, the aftermath of, of pandemic um, or still living in, in the pandemic restrictions, let alone all the other many tragedies that have happened and continue to happen continuously. It just seems like such a meaningful Theme to continue researching this notion of hope and, and how people still manage, and I, I love the idea of of bringing these these research threads together. Um, I personally really look forward to hearing more um, about how they unfold, but I'm absolutely certain that our listeners do do as well. Um, but for now, Henne, I want to thank you for putting your time aside and for joining us to talk about your fantastic
1: book. I had such a lovely time. Thank you, Henne. Thank you, Sylvie. And I just want to mention here because um, at the end to say that uh, although the book is unfortunately really, really expensive, um, as it is at the moment, there is an open access c- copy coming out now um, in less than a year. So if anybody is really dying to get their hands on it, then I have um, discount codes, Get drop me an email and I will... Gladly pass them around.
2: I'm sure there are many people dying to get their their hands on the book. Um, so please do contact Henley Oliva directly. Um, thank you so much, listeners, for tuning into New Books Network. Have a great week, everyone.